Open your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 6. Gospel of Luke and chapter 6, having concluded our study of the 12 apostles, we now come to the next sermon which Luke records for us. And we find that um, we're going to begin reading in verse 17 and reading down through verse 26. Let's give our attention now to the word of God. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray together. Father, again, as we come to these words, which our Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed that day to his disciples, we pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would give us understanding And most of all, that you, by your Spirit, would enable us to apply these truths to our own lives, that we might please our Lord and King. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, the passage before you may sound more than just a little bit familiar. And the reason for that is that the words in this section of the Gospel of Luke are very, very similar to the most famous sermon ever preached. And that, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded for us in Matthew 5 through 7. This particular sermon is the second sermon that Jesus preached. It is the second sermon that Luke has recorded of our Savior's preaching. And the similarities 
to that section in Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, have led numerous commentators to suggest that this is actually the same sermon that we read of in Matthew 5 through 7, but that Luke has greatly condensed it. I think it far better for us to see this sermon not as Luke's condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount, but an entirely different sermon preached at a different time under different circumstances. And I take that position because of several reasons. Let me give them to you quickly. First, the text itself indicates that the circumstances of this sermon were very different from that of the Sermon on the Mount. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount was delivered on the mountain. This sermon is delivered when Jesus came down onto level ground, as it describes in verse 17. Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount takes place before the choosing of the 12 apostles. Luke's account is describing a sermon that takes place after the choosing of the 12, which we have just recently dealt with. The second thing is there's a significant difference between the length and the content of these two sermons. For instance, in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records eight different Beatitudes, whereas in this sermon, Luke records four. Also, Matthew takes three chapters, long chapters at that, to describe the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Luke takes 29 verses to describe this sermon. Now, my friends, sometimes you're in a situation where you need to shorten a particular sermon, but to shorten a sermon that much would by definition mean losing a lot that Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount. The third reason is it is not uncommon for good preachers to repeat whole sermons or large portions of sermons. I was thinking back over many years in which I have listened to other men preach, and I was privileged to hear R.C. Sproul preach on three separate occasions. I guess if there was a disappointment, it would be that two of those three times were the same sermon. (laughs) I heard him one place, and then about six months later, he preached at General Assembly, and I was so excited, and I had my whole family there, and we were ready to hear him give this tremendous sermon, and it was the exact same sermon that I had heard just a few weeks before. The Apostle Peter does much the same thing in his first epistle when he writes. And then in his second epistle, he says, I will not be negligent to remind you of the things you already know. He 
repeated truths in his epistles so that the people of God would be reminded. It's not a bad thing. So this evening, as we look at this second sermon in the Gospel of Luke, I want us to concentrate on what the Lord Jesus Christ thought was so important for the lives of his disciples and his followers that he repeated many truths that he had perhaps already preached. So we're going to look at two out of the three things I've indicated there in your outline. I kind of anticipated this being an issue, and I believe it best to wait and deal more extensively with the kingdom of God and what exactly Jesus means by that. So we're going to look at the first two points. What is the nature of the blessedness promised, and to whom is this blessedness promised? So first, what is the nature of the blessedness promised? Now, when you read the Beatitudes, and when a lot of people read the Beatitudes, they just simply do not make any sense at all. To hear Jesus say, blessed are you poor. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when men persecute you when they hate you, when they say all kinds of evil against you. Children, are you listening? Jesus said, when people mistreat you, when they say mean things, when they do mean things, rejoice. Because you are much like the righteous men of old who were also persecuted, and you will have great reward in heaven. But most people hear these words and they just say, that is absolutely ridiculous. I wonder how we think about these Beatitudes. How do we respond when we hear Jesus say, blessed are you poor? I don't know the financial condition of many in this congregation, but I can remember when my wife and I really were struggling financially. I'm just not sure I would have got it then. Blessed are you, poor. When your heart is broken and you're weeping, because of some set of circumstances that has caused you untold sorrow. Listen to these words. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall be made to laugh. Basically, my friends, here is an excellent illustration of the need to interpret Scripture correctly. Every time you read the Word of God, you can't just say, well, that's what it says, that's what it means. 
you need to ask yourselves, are the words, are the expressions being used literal or are they figurative or are they symbolic? Do they say this but perhaps are really painting a picture of something entirely different? You need to ask, are these words about physical things or spiritual things? So in the case before us, we have to ask, is Jesus talking about physical blessedness, wealth, comfort, pleasure? Is he talking about physical poverty, being financially poor? Is he talking about receiving a physical kingdom? Are we going to have crowns and thrones and scepters and royal robes? Is that what he's describing? Or is there another way to look at this? Is he speaking spiritually? Now, I know that there are some very uh, well-known preachers in our day and age that tell you God wants you to be rich. He wants you to have the very best things that this world has to offer. But my friends, that doesn't square very well with the biblical description of the lives of some of the most godly individuals recorded in Scripture. Think for just a moment about the Apostle Paul and the way he describes his own experience. Listen to the way he says it in 2 Corinthians 11 when he describes his own life and the difficulties that he's encountered. He says in verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes. In other words, he was whipped publicly above measure in prisons more frequently in deaths often From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. In other words, 39 stripes. And it was discovered that usually the 40th stripe would kill the man. So that was the purpose of the 39 stripes. Three times I was beaten. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Later in verse 27, he says, In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. That's what the apostle Paul endured. That's what he faced. That's what he encountered in his ministry and work. Would you say that the apostle Paul was blessed by God and yet he endured all these things. Think of all those men and women mentioned to us in Hebrews 11. We don't need to turn there, but Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, David, and countless others. And what are we told? That they endured trials of cruel mockings, that they were tortured 
that they were scourged, that they were imprisoned, that they were destitute, wandering about in caves. That was what they faced, these men of faith, these women of faith. Were they blessed by God? Think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, as he walked upon this earth, could tell the man who came and wanted to follow him, and he said, the foxes have holes to live in. The birds of the air have nests at night to go to. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Was he blessed by God? Obviously, I think the blessedness that Jesus has in mind is not physical. The blessedness that he promises to those that are poor, to those that weep, to those that are persecuted, is not physical comforts and delights. It's not worldly blessings. I love the way Thomas Watson puts it, and he says, to seek blessedness among the things of the world is like seeking the living among the dead. That's what we need to understand. Christ is not speaking of a physical blessedness. He is promising a blessedness that is found in the spiritual things and in the spiritual world. I want us to think about this in two particular areas. Number one, it is a present blessedness that Jesus is describing. My friends, if you are here tonight and you are in Christ, if you have been united to him by repentance and faith and you're trusting in him, you have a plethora of blessedness that you can give thanks, that you can sing to God for tonight when you think about all that God has done in your life. 2 Peter 1, 4, Peter's talking about that God has given us all things necessary for life and for godliness. And he says that by him we have been become partakers of the divine nature. My friends, if you know Christ, your heart has been changed. You who once were dead in trespasses and sin have been made alive in Christ Jesus. You have been exceedingly blessed. 2 Timothy 1.14 describes how we have received the Holy Spirit. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is that man whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is that man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. My friends, do you know the joy of the forgiveness of your sin? That is an extraordinary blessing for which we may 
thank God. If you don't know that, call upon the Lord. Confess your sin, as John tells us, and he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There are so many things that he has blessed us with. We have the presence of Christ. The Great Commission and Jesus tells his disciples, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He's with us. He's here right now. We can have fellowship. John says our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. We have that fellowship. Remember how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. And verse 3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I love the way Hanley Mole describes that verse when he says, and you, you have to think about this a little bit, but he said, The blessed loves to bless with an act of blessing that divinely affects the good it speaks. Now you think about that, perhaps a little bit later. Right now I want us to see it is a present blessing. We have this now. But it's also a future blessing. What we see and we know and experience now, my friend, is a dim reflection of what's coming. Paul describes what we experience now as the first fruits of our inheritance. It's like the first time you go out and pick produce from the garden that has been, been produced. And you, you enjoy that. But it's just the beginning. You're going to get more and more and more all throughout the season. And that's what Paul is describing. This is, this is what we have now is just the first fruits. John talks about in 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Brethren, we are the children of God. But then he says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know this, that when he is revealed, we will see him and we will be made like him. That's coming. And we can't even begin to understand what all that means. But it's going to be ours. It is a present blessedness. It is a future blessedness. And we're going to speak of that in much greater detail next week when we look at Revelation 21 and the new heavens and the new earth. But let's look at the second main point. To whom is this blessedness promised? It's very important that you understand the nature of the expressions, of the words that Scripture uses but it's equally important that you know to whom the promises are given. We heard this morning about 
the promise of the land, how important that promise of the land was to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Don't bury me in here in Egypt. You take me back to the land of Canaan and ultimately looking for that eternal land. But what we need to understand, brethren, is that that promise of I will give you the land of Canaan does not apply to you and me. I don't think Mr. Netanyahu would appreciate it if we cross the seas and show up and say, hey, this is promised to me. This is part of my, my inheritance. No, it's not part of you because you're not the one that promise was given to. And so we need to be careful. Who is it that Jesus is talking about when he promises this blessedness? He says, blessed are you poor. We need to discern rightly who it is that Jesus has in mind. The promise and the poverty described in this case is not a physical poverty. Just like the blessedness, just like the kingdom that is to come. This is not a physical poverty alone. Ryle, whom I've read with great profit and highly recommend, seems to lean towards looking at this as a physical poverty. Though he says it is a poverty accompanied by grace. I'm a little unsettled with that particular way of describing it. I think there's several things that we need to consider to understand this properly. Number one, hopefully you remember that one of the key rules of interpretation is to compare Scripture with scripture. You don't just jerk a verse out of its context and say, well, this is what it means. This is what it said. This is what it means. You always compare scripture with scripture. You want to ask yourself, are there other places where the same or similar thoughts or words are used and expressions? And in this case, we have exactly that. In Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So he's very clear in Matthew. And when we compare Luke, blessed are you who are poor, with Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. I think we have a very clear indication of its meaning. Secondly, the blessedness spoken of is clearly spiritual in nature, as is the kingdom. Therefore, the poverty spoken of is not a literal, physical poverty necessarily, but a spiritual one. Thirdly, the physical poverty itself is not necessarily a blessed condition. Now, riches 
in Scripture are frequently spoken of as a hindrance to godliness. And we can understand that. We see men like the rich young ruler who come, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. I've already done that. And he says, well, then, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. That was too much to ask. That young man loved his riches, his comforts, his pleasures. And he was not willing to give them up, not even for eternal life. While riches are often viewed as a hindrance, physical poverty is not in and of itself an impetus to follow God. There are plenty of poor people, physically poor people, who are wicked. There are some people who are physically poor because they are wicked. When you look at the story of the prodigal son who threw his riches away and lived a a lavish life but then finds himself in the pigsty. And so we need to recognize that physical poverty in and of itself is not going to lead people to God. And then there are those that are spiritually poor but not having poverty of spirit. And you need to let this register. The Laodicean church in Revelation 3, Jesus said, you say, I am rich and I have need of nothing. And you don't know that you're poor and naked and blind. So here are people professing to follow Christ, to love Christ, and they don't see, they don't realize, they don't know that they are not those who are poor in spirit. So, brethren, to be poor in spirit is to realize that spiritually speaking, we have nothing. Nothing to give to God, nothing to bring to God, nothing to win God's favor or cause God to to let us into his heaven. We frequently ask our new members the question in our interviews with them, if you were to die tonight, And God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that question? And how they answer that question tells you an awfully lot about their understanding. Whether they need Christ and his righteousness, or whether they think, because I'm a pretty good person, I ought to be let in. Because I'm not as bad as my neighbor Mr. Smith, or some other reason. So we need to understand that we have nothing to give to God. Now, 
one thing that you need to see is that to be poor in Jesus' day was very different than being poor in 21st century America. To be poor in Jesus' day meant that you had absolutely nothing. You had to beg for alms. You had to beg for food, for money, just to stay alive. To be poor in Jesus' day meant that you had absolutely nothing. And to be poor in spirit is to realize that we have nothing to give. We come, we fall down before God's throne, and we beg for mercy because we don't deserve it. But because of Christ, God has bestowed that mercy upon us. Like the publican going into the temple with the Pharisee. And the Pharisee prays, I thank you, God, I'm not like this man. But the publican beats upon his breast and cries, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't think anyone has captured this better than Augustus Top Lady in the hymn Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. In the third stanza, you know the words. He says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. My friend, that's poverty of spirit. That is a poverty that recognizes I need Jesus Christ. You realize that in both of these sermons, the Sermon on the Mount and this one recorded by Luke, Jesus puts this beatitude first. Why? Why does he introduce both sections with blessed are the poor in spirit? Because this is the starting place, my friends. This is the starting place for salvation. This is the place where you begin and you cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because nothing but Christ can save us, can cleanse us. But remember, these words were spoken to those who have already been called and chosen and were already following Christ. So this is the starting place for sanctification as well as salvation. This is the place where we begin. This is the will of the king 
for his disciples. You want to please me? This is what I want you to do. I want you to weep and to mourn for your sin. I want you to hunger and thirst for righteousness and the kingdom of God. I want you to rejoice when you're persecuted. This is the will of the king. And if we're going to please him, this is where we start. We can't please him. But by his grace and power and spirit. This is where we begin to hunger, to weep, to be kind to our neighbors, to rejoice no matter what our circumstances. It all begins here. My friends, you must look to Christ for the grace to live the way he wants you to live. It begins with that poverty of spirit. And this is Watson describes will change you. It will change every day of your lives because the poor in spirit will live like beggars at God's table. They will go from Sabbath to Sabbath, hungry, thirsting, longing, feed me, wash me, clothe me. You will go from ordinance to ordinance. You will go from prayer to the word. You'll go from word to worship. You'll go from worship to sacrament like we enjoyed this morning in the Lord's Supper. Everything that God has given us whereby we might live an abundant life is ours, but we must take it as beggars who do not deserve it. But every day we will go from ordinance to ordinance saying, Lord, Continue that good work you have begun in me. Well, next week, Lord willing, we will look at the kingdom that is promised here. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It is a glorious promise, and we will look forward with anticipation to God's word in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words that are searching words that often expose our self-reliance, our self-confidence, our self-sufficiency. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves. You are the great God who dwells in that high and holy place, but you also dwell with the broken and contrite in heart to revive the contrite and to revive the humble. Lord, help us this night to take these words, to be encouraged that you love us enough to show us our need of your Son. And bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments and meditate upon the things we've heard.